Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down beside the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you, are now, the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews proclaim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. There's a lot of different ways to preach this passage, and, and a lot of people preach them in different ways, and I think one of the more common ones is to talk about how the woman misunderstood who Jesus is, that she didn't quite grasp it, and she kept redirecting his questions and trying to stay at the very surface level of conversation. Another way to preach this is that, to focus on the fact that Jesus says that he is the living water, 
and to build off of what it means that he is the living water. Still another way to preach this passage is to look at the progression of revelation that occurs within this passage. That first Jesus is simply a Jewish man and then he becomes a teacher and then he becomes a prophet and then he becomes the Messiah himself. You can see this progression of revelation unfold. And all of those are great ways to read this passage and to to study it. But what always gets me about this passage is is how uncomfortable it would be to be the woman. I mean, can can you imagine going to do something that you do every day, a very mundane task? This woman is going to draw water. So the thing that you do every single day, you're going to do that. And as you get to the place to do that task, you find Jesus there. And can you imagine sitting down or beginning a conversation with him and for all of your efforts to change the direction of the conversation, he continues to ask question after question that peels back yet another layer of your life. Right? The stuff that you work really hard to keep hidden. The things that you don't want others to see. The insecurities, the events of the past, the things that you've done, the things that were done to you, the competitiveness maybe that underlines your relationships with people, the pride that you exhibit the judgmentalism that you try to keep under wraps. Like, we've all got these things that we would rather keep hidden. And rather than letting them come out, I think what a majority of us do, we, we protect ourselves by projecting the image that we want others to have of us. Now, to a degree, the image that we project to others is a part of our true self, a part of who we are, part of that who the Father knit us to be in our mother's wombs. There's a part of that projection that is our true selves, but there's this other part of ourselves that gets projected because we simply want others to see us a particular way or we want to hide those things that we think are unsightly. So, So maybe we're gentle. If you truly get to the core of who we are, there's this gentleness that resides there, and we see that as a liability in business and in relationships. And so we, we project a kind of riskiness or a competitive, competitiveness or this hardened shell that things don't really affect us. Maybe we actually delight in very simple things sunsets and freshly cut grass, the smell of freshly cut grass, leaves, sitting back and watching our kids, like whatever that simple thing is, but rather than being seen as a simpleton, we buy into and succumb to the pressure of consumerism to have more and greater and better. Maybe we have an insecurity that sort of undermines everything that we do. And rather than let that insecurity show itself, rather than allow others to maybe get a glimpse of it, it gets hidden by self-righteousness, demonizing others, and judgmentalism. Maybe, maybe we're afraid of being seen as wrong. Wrong about whatever, like wrong about faith, wrong about religion, wrong about politics, wrong about parenting, wrong about whatever it might be. And so we cover over that that fear of being wrong with a rigid fundamentalism. This is right, and it's the only way that's right. 
And what ends up happening here is we've got these two things that are competing. We've got our true self here, and then we've got this image that we're trying to project to others so they don't see parts of who we really are, parts of what's been in our past, part of the things that have affected us, part of the things that maybe we see as liabilities in the world. And so this exterior self that we have becomes an amalgamation of both our true selves and the self that we want to be, the self that we want others to believe us to be. And sometimes, sometimes I really do think that that projection, that, 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 that project is done with true intentions. I think about how it may play out for us who go to church on a regular basis. For those of us who come to church and we sit and we hear sermons about how Christ has saved us and Christ has set us free and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory and we become like the image of Jesus, like we have in our minds what that means. We get this picture of what it looks like to be a quote-unquote good Christian and we feel this pressure to live into that model. We feel this pressure to to have this external evidence that, yes, Jesus is a part of my life. Jesus has transformed my life. Jesus has changed me. And so now, yes, I was a sinner, but Jesus has saved me from that. I once was all messed up, but now I've got it together. I once was lost, but now I'm, now I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Now I'm found. Now I've got it all together. And we work really, really hard into living into that identity. And maybe for all of our efforts to live into the identity of a good Christian, we actually, maybe, maybe we do experience a little bit of spiritual transformation. Maybe, maybe a little bit of reforming ourselves does take place. But more than anything, my guess is that we, we find ourselves frustrated. We find ourselves frustrated because the promises that we hear so often about haven't been realized. Jesus promises the abundant life, but all we're left with is the busy, crowded, overwhelming life. Jesus promises us peace. If we just cast all our anxieties on him, then, then we will have peace, but it doesn't feel like a whole lot of peace. We're still wondering. We're wondering if this is really true. We're wondering if everybody else is experiencing this or if it's just us. We feel very restless. And so we find ourselves in this vicious cycle where the more we come to church and the more we are around other Christians, we feel like we're failing. We're not living into that model. Other people have it together, but I don't have it together. And we wonder, do I really fit in? Do I really belong? Is this really true for me? Is God really out there? Or maybe even is God in some way disappointed with me? And you can see where this leads because it's not just now I'm, I, I'm feeling all of these things and I'm feeling, feeling out of place and I'm wondering if it's really real, but I'm also in this place of being scared of being found out. Heaven forbid the people in church would find out that I don't have it all together. That I'm struggling with whether or not I believe salvation to really have come into my life. And so I try all the harder to project that image. I've got it together. I'm okay. I believe. And we're doing all of these things to look like a Christian and maybe even be a Christian in the way that we think we ought to be, but it isn't resulting in any truth or any change. It's not resulting in any peace. It's not feeling like I'm secure. 
And I certainly don't feel like one of God's beloved. And Jesus comes, and he sits down next to us. He says, will you give me a drink? Can I ask you some questions? That's what terrifies me about this passage. What terrifies me is the possibility that one day I am going to be the woman. I'm going to be the woman, and here's the thing Jesus knows. He knows me beyond the image that I've carefully crafted. And all my efforts to redirect him and rebuff him are going to be met with another question that forces me to peel back another layer of my life. He knows. And you can't escape it. He is the hound of heaven and he will sniff you out. And that is both comforting and it is a terrifying possibility. But I would also argue that it's the only way to peace. It's really the only way to shalom. Central to the Bible is the idea of shalom. Shalom is often translated peace, uh, but as we saw last week, it is much, much deeper than peace. It's, it's this harmony, right? It's the sense that things are the way that they're supposed to be. And so one way to think about shalom might be like this. In the beginning, there was chaos, right? The Genesis story tells us that in the beginning, the earth was formless and void. Now, the Hebrew word there is one of my favorite Hebrew, it's probably one of my favorite words of all time. It's the words tohu vavohu, right? You can, you can hear the chaos in it, right? There's this reduplication of sounds, and it sounds like you don't know what you're saying, tohu vavohu, and you're just like, the words are coming out, the sounds are coming out, and they're coming out fast. The earth was formless and void. It was tohu vavohu. Or, if we were maybe to translate tohu vavohu to English, we could go with with the way that the Beatles talked about it, but then Charles Manson co-opted, helter-skelter. It's chaos. And into this helter-skelter universe, God speaks and brings order. God separates, and he forms boundaries. He puts the different elements of creation into their place, he orders the days and the nights according to the stars and the suns and the moons. He tells the waters no further. This, right here, this is where you end. And this ordering of the chaos is what brings shalom. Shalom is when the world is ordered. Shalom is where thing, when things are in their place. Shalom is when there's harmony. It's the way it's supposed to be. Sin, then, introduces chaos back into the ordered world that God has created. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga, which if you name your kids Cornelius and your last name is Plantinga, you can for sure bet that they will become a theologian. There's just no other way around that, right? Cornelius Plantinga defined sin as vandalism 
of God's shalom. Sin is the vandalism of God's shalom. I I love this image. So just imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that your house is perfectly clean. And the place is clean because your kids have gone to stay with grandma and grandpa for a week. And so everything's been dusted, and the carpet's been vacuumed, the floors have been washed, the counters are cleaned off, the toys are all where they belong, a candle is lit, things smell the way they're supposed to, the garbages have been emptied, the dishes are done. It's ordered. And then you and your spouse go away for the evening. You go and you have a nice dinner. And you come home and you pull into the driveway. And as you pull into the driveway, you know that your front door is hanging open and you can see that the door jam has been torn apart. And maybe you've never seen a movie in your life, but you decide to go in the house to see what is happening before you call the police. And so you go into the house and you see that things have been stolen, but not just stolen, like destroyed. Everything is laying all over the floor. Dishes are smashed. Lamps are laying over. The couches have been overturned. Disorder is throughout your house. Like, this is what, what was ordered has now been vandalized. Sin is the vandalism of God's shalom. And upon finding his creation vandalized, God makes a promise. I will put it back together again. I will clean this mess. What is broken, I will repair. Shalom will be realized again. And the way that shalom will be realized again is through my son, Jesus Christ. In his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, Eugene Peterson says this. It's this simple yet incredibly bold statement. It says, Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up the meaning of words. Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up the meaning of words. So, how do you define love? Well, you go and you look at Jesus and how he embodied love. What did he do? How did he react to people? How did he, how did he act towards the people who were hurting? How did he act towards the people who were oppressed? How did he act towards the people who were sick? How did he act towards his enemies? Jesus is the dictionary in which we look up words. How do you define patience? You look at Jesus, and how did Jesus embody patience? What did he do? What did he not do? And can I just tell you, as a parent, it gives me a lot of Hope that Jesus got frustrated in his patience, right? How do you define judgment? Well, you look at Jesus, and how did Jesus judge, and who did he judge, and who didn't he judge, and what did that judgment look like? And, and, and even when Jesus judged, what happened in the people to whom he was judging? What transformation, what change, what conversations, what, what happened? How do you define Shalom. We look at Jesus. And so I want to look again at another passage of Jesus. If you want, turn with me to John chapter 10. Now, if you remember, one of the things that we talked about with Shalom is that it is talking about harmony and harmony in our relationship with God, harmony in our relationship with others, and harmony in our relationship with creation. And so I want to look at this passage because 
This is going to give us a bit of an insight into Jesus and this idea of shalom, how he might define it, both in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. John chapter 10, starting at verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So if we were to look at this passage with the question, how do you define shalom? One way in which we could define shalom as it pertains to our relationship is this idea of knowing. Shalom, being in right relationship with God and in right relationship with others, is when we are known and when we know. Now, when we talk about being known or knowing another, we have to clarify what we mean because we have this word knowing or, or, it's, uh, or words that are related to it, like knowledge, right? So I want to define it, because I think in our culture we sometimes misunderstand what it means to know. So turn to me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. First Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to start at verse 1. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know, as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So, Notice the distinction that Paul is making. He's drawing a distinction between knowledge and being known by God. And he says, listen, you can know things. You can have knowledge about Bible verses and theology and doctrine. You can know things, but knowing those things doesn't necessarily mean that you love. In fact, it may not even know that, mean that you know God. For the way to know God is through love. Right? I think what we have to wrestle with the fact here, because we live in an age of modernity in which factual knowledge, rational knowledge, is extremely important. We test our students. How well do you know a subject? How much can you regurgitate the facts back to me? Right? That's how we determine whether or not someone knows something. Even think about your friends and your loved ones. If you, someone were to say, do you know them? Yes, I know them. How do you know them? And you start to describe the things that you do together. You begin to describe facts about them. But very rarely do we get below the surface, right? And so what we have to realize is that knowledge can actually get in the way of us knowing things. And in the space of our relationship with God... Knowledge can actually be the apple that we're tempted with. That if I gain more knowledge, then I'll know God. If I know the Bible better, if I can cite verses, if I have things memorized, then I'll know God better. If I know theology really, really well, if I read Calvin's Institutes, if I read more books, and listen, I'm not saying any of those things are bad, but what I'm saying is, is they can trick us into believing that if we just increase our knowledge, 
then we'll know. But what Paul just said is, you can have that knowledge, you can possess that knowledge, but it just may puff you up. And what I can guarantee you is that knowledge does not transform. Knowledge doesn't transform because here's, here's, what, here's what I believe. I believe that all of us here in this room have all the knowledge we need. I believe that you know enough Bible. If you've been, if you've been going to church for any period of time, you know enough Bible. More than likely, you've got the major tenets of the gospel down. That if I were to say, outline the gospel in five steps, you'd be able to do it. God created, humanity sinned, God sent Jesus, Jesus died on the cross, asked for forgiveness, you can be saved. Like, my guess is all of us know those five things. And you could recite them back. Most of us have a working knowledge of, of biblical stories and biblical concepts and some of the morals that are espoused throughout the Bible. Like, we have enough knowledge. The, tra- the, re- the reality, though, is if it were true that knowledge transformed and if you have the right knowledge and enough of that knowledge, then that conflict within your family that continually comes up and that drives a wedge between people would be non-existent, right? That, that, that you would never be tempted by porn again, that you would not feel guilty or wonder if you've ever been forgiven. You would, you, that, that one besetting sin, the anger that creeps in, the fear that you have, all of that would be gone and your children would love and respect you from age four all the way through eternity. Like you would have it all together. If knowledge transformed, we have enough knowledge. But we still have problems and we still have conflicts and there's still flaws about us and we're still tempted and we still have those insecurities and we still have those fears because knowledge doesn't transform. Knowledge can actually be the thing that gets in the way. What transforms is the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus comes through being known. Christian psychologist Kurt Thompson, he says this. He says, when you keep your relationship with God exclusively fact-based and rational, it's easy to make judgments about others and yourself. Such judgments reduce your anxiety and increase your sense of safety and protection. However, this way of being also has the curious effect of increasing the isolation you feel both from others and within your own mind. The truth of the matter is, is that we live in an age that is extremely rational and is extremely fact-driven. And we also live in an age that is the most isolated. Loneliness is the new epidemic. People now feel more lonely than ever. We have more knowledge available at our fingertips. In my phone right now, essentially, essentially the knowledge of the human race is accessible. And yet we're a generation and a people who feel more isolated than ever. Knowledge is not how we are known. We are known when we sit at the well beside Jesus and let him peel back the layers of our life. To be known is to voluntarily put yourself into a position of vulnerability. To be known is to allow Jesus to ask you questions about the parts of your life that you're trying to hide, the parts of your life that you hope no one finds out about. To be known is to be pursued. 
To be known is to be examined. To be known is to risk allowing someone to look over your life and then say to you, the furniture of your life needs to be rearranged. In fact, this house that you've built, a few walls need to come out. It means allowing those things that you've been pushing down and pushing aside and trying to keep hidden, allowing them to come up to the surface so that they can be seen. Because it's there that healing is found. And that's incredibly scary. This is why I believe being the woman in this story would be a terrifying prospect. But I also fully believe that if you are not willing to experience Jesus revealing yourself to you, if you're not willing to let him peel back the layers of your life, then you cannot know God. Not truly. You can know about God all day long. But if you are unwilling to have that experience, you cannot know God. And the degree to which you know God mirrors the degree to which you experience being known by God. And the degree to which you experience being known by God will be reflected in the way in which you allow others to know you. Shalom, harmony with God, harmony with others. To be known by God is to be known by others. And to be known by others is to let people know you. To let go of the pride project and projecting the image that you want them to have of you. It's to let go of, the, of controlling or trying to control how people will respond to you, what assessments they will make about you and how you live your life and how you parent and your marriage and all of these things. It is to grant them the option to love you, to love you. Or to reject you. And that's why all of this is scary. We really want to give people the first option. I give you the option to love me. But I deny you the option to reject me. Right? And that's the way we want it to work. But you can't only choose one of those. To be known is to give up rejection, to, to give up control. To be known is to allow people to see, to uncover, to sit at the well, and to allow the questions to be peeled back. But again, that's difficult. It's difficult because we live at a, 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 not only do we live at a time in which we are the loneliest people, but we also live at a time in which we have these competing desires. Because we are lonely, there is a strong desire, pervasive throughout our culture, to be a people who are, live in community. We want that. We desire for that. You hear people coming into church, they, they, they long to live in community. People out there want to be known. We live at a time in which that's a high premium because of the isolation that we feel. And yet, we also live at a time when personal freedom is at an all-time high. And because we have this competing desires of personal freedom 
and community, we often, what often happens is we find ourselves in this place where we long for something, but we're unwilling to make the sacrifices necessary to actually have that which we long for. Right? So we want to build relationships with people. We want to get to know them. We want them to have community. We want them to know us. But man, I'm just always busy on Fridays and Saturday nights. I'm sorry, I can't get together. And I'm not going to give up my Friday and Saturday nights because they're mine. I, I would love to have the opportunity to connect with people. But I, but I want it as an opportunity. I want to know that it's out there and it's one of the options. But if another option comes along, I want the opportunity to choose that one over this one. I want to I have a group of people who I love to share meals with, but it's got to be from this time to this time. It's got to be on these certain days, and our kids don't eat this, and this is what we've got to do, and, it just, and, and we put all of these barriers in the way of actually getting the community that we long for. And because of this, I would go so far as to say personal freedom is one of the idols of our day. And I say that it's an idol because the minute we suggest to someone they have to give that up, you have to give up that. You have to submit to the needs of others. You have to allow yourself to, to be a part of the group, you know, like whatever the group is. Like when I say that, there's usually this, this resistance that happens. Either this resistance comes out in the form of, well, I can have both. Why are you saying it's an either or? It's a both and thing here. Or this resistance of, well, you just don't understand, like, I'm so busy throughout the week, I really just want to give up, I don't want to give up my weekends, that's my time. It's just, it's so hard to get the kids ready and for us to meet, and it just takes so much energy and all of that sort of stuff. I, I, I'm just, I just don't know that I want to be in, with that group of people over there because... You know, we think differently about certain issues, and I don't really want to be challenged about my beliefs. I don't, want to, I don't want to do something that's super serious. I just want something light, and I want it to be fun, right? Man, I really want to be known. You feel how these pull against each other. And I think what we fail to see is just how transformational it can be to be truly known, to let those layers be peeled back so what's down below can be surfaced. We fail to see how, how impactful that is. We just think it's like, do I have close friends or do I think it like that? And we fail to see the way that it, this unwillingness to be known, or another way to say it, this desire to control what people think of us, this desire just trickles out into other areas of our lives. And so you get, maybe you've got a grandfather who's never dealt with the neglect that he has experienced from his own father. But he didn't want to talk about it. We really don't have to talk about it. That was years in the past. And, you know, back then we just, we just grit our teeth and we buckled down and we did what we had to do to survive. And y'all talk, talking about this psychobabble emotional stuff. And I don't understand why any of it is important. All the while he's estranged from his children and doesn't understand why his grandkids are so irresponsible. families split apart because siblings can't forgive one another and I can't see how they would even think that way or how, they, they, how come they're that way and I'm this way and we're so worlds apart and all this and this conflict just continues to exist because nobody is willing to try to know one another or to be known. We've got a high school student by all accords is bright but is failing in their classes 
And the parents don't understand and they give them every opportunity and they give them tutors and they have them class, you know, in classes after school and they do all of these things trying to do it, but they never stop to ask the questions like, what's really going on? What's, who are you? What do you enjoy? What, like, and maybe it's because it was never modeled for them. Or you have a middle-class family who has every opportunity, has all the resources, all of this, but there's this marriage, and it's been filling with resentment and all of that, and the, the spouses grow further and further apart. And it can be, all of these can be examples of how we w- refuse or resist giving up control of what others might think of us or being seen as someone who doesn't have it all together, or being seen as someone who has not yet arrived. And so we just focus on the other stuff. I go to church. I know my Bible. I've got the right theology. I've got the right behavior. I'm making good choices. Because honestly, knowledge is much less scary than being known. Being known is a terrifying endeavor. And I'm not just talking about being known in the sense of letting your flaws, letting your hang-ups, letting your addictions. I'm not talking about any of that. Just that. I mean, maybe some of that. But also being known in the sense of what your, what your hopes and what your dreams are. What your longings are. Being honest simply about the places where your life you go, you know, this is good. Maybe it's like this. My marriage is good. And yet there's this one aspect over here. And I could gloss over it and I could walk by it and we could ignore it for the rest of our lives. But there's this one area over here where I know it's not quite what it's supposed to be. I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to mess things up. So I'm just not going to say anything about that. Right? We miss out on a little bit of shalom there because we don't want to be known. We don't want that to be known. We don't want to be known that maybe, maybe in this one area, I'm not quite satisfied. But if we want to experience God, that experience of, know, of being known by God and knowing God, then we have to be willing to allow those layers to be peeled back. We have to name our disappointments and, and let our dreams out of the box, so to speak. We have to confess where our addiction exists. This is what I believe the Bible is talking about when it says confess your sins one to another. Confess those places where shalom doesn't quite exist. Confess those places where where it has vandalized the shalom of God. Confessing our sins is not just some perfunctory religious practice. I really believe it is something that has been instituted into the Christian community because it's a way in which we are honest with one another. It is a way in which we're vulnerable. It's a way in which we are known. And then, in being known, in confessing to one another, we experience grace. And we know God, and we're known by God. And then we can say, I have found shalom for now. I know as I am fully known. And so as we think about shalom in our lives and how we can be present to it and experience it, we have to be willing to see Jesus sitting next to us. See him come alongside of us in a mundane task and 
say, hey, can, can you give me some water? And recognize that he's not really out to get us some water, but he wants to know you. And he wants you to know that he knows you. Because when you know that he knows you, then you'll know that you're his beloved. You'll realize that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus. Those things that you think will cause others to reject you, Jesus will say, yeah, yeah, I already knew that. I knew that. And I love you anyways. And as we experience that, grace abounds. Just a small little place of creation is put back into place. It's a little bit more as it should be. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that you are the God who knows us. You are the God who has knit us together in our mother's womb and there is not a place that we can go to hide from you. There is not a mountain high enough. There is not an ocean deep enough. There is not a corner of our soul that we can back into that you cannot find us in. And for that, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you come, you find us, you draw us out of ourselves that we might be saved. And we give you thanks that the ways in which our desires for control and our pride projects have brought chaos back into the world. I give you thanks that you are putting it all back together. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior.